live from Earth. It's Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. We've got an exciting show for you today where we are talking about stars eating black holes and black holes eating stars and everything going haywire. And this show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here in Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail to get yourself on the air. You can also follow along with our space cadets tuning in live from around the world, including but not limited to Torrance, California, Lake Villa, Illinois. I'm guessing it's not Lake Villa, Illinois. Just 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 a random guess there. We also also got Dunsedale, New Zealand, Pella City, Alabama, Washington, D.C., Howell, New Jersey, Kosovo, Halifax, England, Bristol, Indiana, and Duluth, Minnesota. And like I said, there are more tuning in by the second. Remember, you need to go to spaceradioshow.com. That's where you'll find the the button where you can leave a voicemail and it's super fun and super easy and super convenient. And it's also where you get the links to YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook where you can tune in live every Thursday for 8 p.m. But this is a limited time offer. That's right. This is our third to last episode. Or is it second to last? Because this is second to last. No, no, no. It's third to last. I got it right the first time. Because we've got three more, including this one that we're in right now. So we have like 2.9 episodes left of Space Radio before it, it just goes away. It's bye. We're just done. It's all gone. It's all gone. Now, speaking of all gone, have you seen this news about, oh, I wrote an article about it for Universe Today. And uh, I didn't link to my own article because I don't know. I, it's, it's cool science. It's cool science. It's based on very, very limited data. and But this is super common in astronomy where we see a thing, an event, or two events, and then that's it. And then we have to try to explain what is going on with that very limited amount of data, which is basically all of science. So astronomy is not very special or unique in this regard. But it can be very, very difficult and frustrating. And you have to be very, very creative to come up with these interesting stories. So what we have here is there was a, a burst of x-rays coming from a particular galaxy. Okay, happens all the time, whatever. It happens like seven years ago or something. And then at the time, there were no uh, large radio emissions coming from that same galaxy. Okay, whatever, flash of x-rays, see it all the time. But then a few years later, we do start to see radio emissions coming from that spot of that distant galaxy. The galaxy is like 500 million light years away, if I remember right. Don't ask me the name because I don't know what it is. So this is a mystery. We've got an x-ray flash followed a few years later by radio emission. What is going on? And the best guess that we have that's going on is that we had a binary star system, which they're very common. No big deal there. One of the stars went supernova, happens, turned into either a neutron star or a black hole. Then orbited, its orbit got closer and closer and closer to that companion star and eventually uh, touched the atmosphere of that star. And when it touched the atmosphere of that star, uh, as you can imagine, there was a lot of violence. 
there was a lot of nastiness, there was a lot of messiness, and it threw this material out into the outer regions of that system. Then eventually this massive object, the neutron star of the black hole, sank to the core of the star. As you might imagine, it's somewhat difficult to maintain fusion reactions when you have a black hole or a neutron star in your center. So the star went boom. That's the X-ray flash that we saw. Now what's happening is that the flash, uh, the supernova explosion that happened, sent out a shockwave of material that is traveling faster than the material that was sent out when the black hole first touched the, the edges of the star and started throwing material. So you got all this stellar material just hanging out, minding its own madness, slowly meandering away, and then in comes a shockwave, slams into it, and generates the radio emission. Are there other potential plausible scenarios to explain an X-ray flare followed a few years later by radio emission? Yes. Are those explanations potentially more boring? Hard to tell. It's it's a plausible story, but it's interesting. This is this is why one of the reasons science is so fun and astronomy is so fun is we have here's what we have. We have an X-ray flash, and then from the same spot, we have radio emission a few years later. Go out, go forth and explain, and you have to be super creative. I don't get, I do not get this uh, uh, common popular perception that scientists are not creative. What, what uncreative, what kind of person could possibly come up with a scenario of a star swallowing a black hole ejecting material, then it itself going supernova. By the way, it took about 300 years for the black hole or neutron star to sink down to the center and then trigger uh, a supernova explosion whose shockwave then intermingled. And then not only be able to create, be creative enough to concoct that story, which is a wild ride of a story, but to connect it to the evidence and use mathematics and our insights of physical uh, understanding to, to predict what those signals might look like and see if they can explain what we actually observe. I mean, is that uncreative? Am I missing something? Did I, did I not take the uh, uh, here's how to be uncreative class in science school? <laughs> Did I miss that part? Am I the only one? Uh, space cadets, am I the only one? Back me up here. Am I correct or incorrect in my perception of the public's perception of scientists? Is it a common stereotype that scientists are uncreative people and they're just obsessed with math and being right, which we are, but we're also super creative. Space cadets, help me out with that because, because I feel like I'm not... Uh, Maybe I'm just making things up. Maybe I'm ranting based on incorrect and incomplete information, which would not be the first time. Speaking of ranting, while the space cadets are tuning in, while the space cadets are tuning in, we've got lots of questions here. What's the vast supercluster called that we are in? Is it uh, Lana Kea? Uh, and, and yeah, so, okay. Large scale structure of the universe. Here we go. Solar system, check. Orion arm of the Milky Way, check. Milky Way, check. Local group of galaxies, called the local group of galaxies, not the most creative name, check. Beyond that, we are nearby 
a couple large clusters of galaxies. Uh, the nearest one is the Virgo cluster of galaxies, but larger, but our local group is itself, uh, we're all bound together. It's us in Andromeda, Triangulum, and a bunch of dwarf galaxies that nobody cares about. And us as a group are headed to the Virgo cluster. We're gonna merge with them in you know a few billion years or whatever. Then us and Virgo together are moving somewhere else. That is the direction of the Great Attractor, which is the gravitational center of what we call our local supercluster, which is called Laniakea, which is a Hawaiian term meaning bountiful heaven. Bountiful heaven. Alan Snyder on YouTube, Space Cadet. Oh, wait, Alan Snyder is saying scientists are super creative, but forgetful. Oh, yeah, like, okay, I see the there's the uh, mad scientist trope in the media where they got a white lab coat and they're white, of course, and they have, they have like crazy uh, late period Einstein hair. He used to be very dapper. He stopped caring about that. And they, they're super smart, but they're scattered. And now, I to, to, to be fair, I have met scientists who meet that stereotype. I've been in some offices that are piled high with books everywhere, and you have to navigate a narrow little path to get to the professor's desk. I've been in some labs that are frightfully disorganized. I've also seen pristine, well-appointed uh, offices with great views and, and lovely plants in the corner. I've, I've seen it all, okay? Scientists are diverse. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, Russell. I appreciate that. Scientists are diverse. Anyway, Alan Snyder had a question. Interested someday in hearing about the computer simulations Paul wrote during his PhD? What language? What did it run on? What were the inputs and outputs? And how were they compared to observations? Now, this brings me back to the good old days. Because uh, I wrote my PhD 10 years ago. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Now, back in those days, we couldn't just simulate on a computer. We needed a supercomputer. And so we had to... Now, um... So yes, my PhD work, my dissertation work at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, I forget my thesis title. Oh, 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 it was something about magnetized outflows from supermassive black holes in active galactic nuclei, colon, a numerical perspective. And the colon was not pronounced as a word. It was the punctuation point, colon. Uh, here's what I did. For my thesis work, I did simulations of galaxy clusters. Galaxy clusters are those big, massive structures. They're a couple million light year uh, megaparsec, sorry, a couple million parsec across. They have around a thousand galaxies. They're filled with hot gas. It's very, very thin, but it's there. It's very diffuse. They're big. They're the largest gravitationally bound structures in the universe. The central galaxies of the galaxy clusters have supermassive black holes. These supermassive black holes sometimes undergo feeding events. 
And then the feeding events drive these jets and the jets propagate outwards way outside of the host galaxy. These jets go for tens of thousands of light years and then inflate massive bubbles in the, uh, the hot gas in the, in the cluster. And these bubbles detach and rise up and they're, they're tens of thousands of light years across and they're, they're majestic and they're beautiful. And I was specifically exploring the, the magnetic fields of those bubbles. And I was wondering and exploring if the magnetic fields launched from these black holes, from the supermassive black holes, were what it took to magnetize the entire galaxy cluster. Galaxy clusters have these weak magnetic fields, but we don't know where they come from, and so we were trying to find out where they came from. The code I used was written in, of all things, Fortran. And it was an old, older code base. Uh, uh, there was a, this massive simulation package that's free to get. It's called Flash. It doesn't stand for anything, even though it's written in all capital letters. But it's just a massive code for doing simulations of these types. So I was using that massive already existing code which my advisor, Paul Ricker, was a major part of developing that. And then I was monkeying around with the internals, uh, changing a lot of things, adding a lot of things, uh, uh, adding on the calculations of the magnetic fields, uh, handling of the gas, all sorts of stuff. We ran these simulations. This, these simulations were way too big to run on a single computer, so we were using supercomputers. Mostly I was using computers at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. At the time, I had the privilege of being able to use the largest computers, most powerful public open science computers in the world. I'm sure the NSA has a more powerful computer, but they're not telling us about it. And in terms of inputs and outputs and how they compare to observations, so the inputs would be here is a galaxy cluster, here is it in a pristine, undisturbed state, here is its temperature all over the place, here's the gas density all over the place, here the pressure, so all that's predefined, and then I would uh, inject Magnet, magnetic energy into the center of the cluster and the simulation would track the evolution of that gas and the magnetic fields and how it would respond and what the temperature would do and any mixing of the simulation would track that. And then at the end, we would have a galaxy cluster that was magnetized. And we would then take this galaxy cluster, pretend one on the computer, and we would know its temperature. We would know its density uh, throughout the cluster. We would know its magnetic content. And then we have observations of galaxy cluster temperatures, pressures, densities, magnetic field strength. And we would uh, try to compare it to observations. I think uh, that was it. That was my thesis work. In my postdoc, as soon as I got my PhD and I was used to using these super high-end computers, you know, running massive, massive simulation that take 100,000 processors at once to, to run, I, I never used a supercomputer ever again because it was, it was frustrating. But it was fun. I'm glad I did it. Four questions from Enver Kurteshi here on Space Radio. That's getting greedy, especially here near the end with only three episodes left. But okay, let's do it. If we happen to orbit from a safe distance of black hole without an accretion disk, can we measure its spin? Uh, yes. Uh, the orbit around the black hole will inform it, uh, 
its spin rate. Uh, because if the spin is going in a certain direction and a certain speed, this modifies space time around it. And so it will affect the orbit of everything around it, including your own orbit. So yes, you can potentially measure the spin of a black hole just by orbiting around it and very, very carefully noting what your orbit looks like. Number two, if, black hole with a, if a black hole with an event horizon the size of a tennis ball appears in my backyard, what will it happen? What will happen? What will happen is it will sink down to the center of the Earth because it's gravitationally attracted to the Earth. It will simply fall through the Earth. It just cuts on through. Just uh, nothing slows it down. Well, I shouldn't say and nothing directly slows it down. There's no friction or anything, but there is the gravitational interactions with the entire Earth. So it'll slice through the Earth, go through the other side, then come back, and it'll bounce around a lot, but every time it bounces around, it will slowly, slowly, slowly slow down from all those gravitational interactions, and it will embed itself in our core. And this process, I actually wrote a space.com article about this that should be out next month. Uh, no, 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 it's already, it's already out, is what would happen if a black hole this size were to strike the Earth? Yes, eventually the Earth would be destroyed, but it'll take a while. The main effect, the main effect is... As the black hole is plunging through the Earth, there's all this, all the Earth stuff, all the mantle and the crust and the dolphins and everything want to squeeze down into the event horizon because of the, the mass of gravity. And that is that accretion process generates heat and that generate that generated heat will be released into the Earth. So it's like being hit by an asteroid. That's the takeaway. Be getting struck by a tiny black hole is like getting hit by an asteroid in terms of amount of energy released. Why the Big Bang didn't collapse into one giant black hole? Black holes appear when there are density differences, when you've got not a lot of stuff over here and a lot of stuff over here. That's how you get an event horizon of a, uh, that's how you get a singularity, catastrophic gravitational collapse. If everything's pretty smooth and even, there are no density differences, there are no matter differences, and so you can't form a black hole. You need differences in order to trigger the formation of black hole. Question number four, let's suppose we have infinite energy. I'm just going to stop there because we don't. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Edward Hinton on YouTube, light has properties, but does darkness have properties? And if not, why is it dark? So there's the colloquial definition of light, which is absence of darkness. But then there's the physical definition of light, which is electromagnetic radiation that our eyes are sensitive to. So electromagnetic radiation exists. It's a thing that propagates, that travels, that has interactions in the universe. The vacuum of space also exists and has properties. It's not so good at propagating, but it exists. So yeah, the vacuum of space exists. Things traveling through the vacuum of space also exist. That's pretty much it. Paul Gilligan, if time is also subject to the uncertainty principle, would that provide some insight to superposition and the quantum erasure effects? So uh, the uncertainty principle here, there are a few uncertainty principles. The one you're referring to is that if I want to measure something's energy and I take a certain amount of time to do it, I cannot measure a particle's energy content, energy level, to arbitrary precision, to as high precision as I want, 
in as short a time as I want. There has to be a trade-off. If I want more accuracy in the energy, I need to take more time. And if I have less time to do it, then I'm going to be less precise about its energy. That's all. That's all. And all the uncertainty principles, I didn't ask a spaceman about this. That was really fun. All just come down to their uncertainty principles in, in wave equations that describe water waves. Like if you try to measure the momentum and position of water waves, an uncertainty principle arises there because that's what waves do. And it's the wave nature of, of matter that gives rise to all these uncertainty principles. It's all the same math, which is super cool. It's all the same math. Should I play, should I play um, voicemail roulette? Do we know what we're going to get? Don't worry, for the last episode, so next week we have a guest, Christian Reddy, and then the week after that, two weeks, which is our final episode, I'm gonna listen to every single voicemail and I'm gonna take every single question from the Space Cadets until we are done. But in the meantime, I'm looking at these voicemails. I got some anonymous ones, which is always a bad sign. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's a bad idea, let's do it. Here we go. Hi, Paul. Steve here again from the UK. Oh, it's Steve. With space radio coming to an end, I'd like mm. to take the opportunity to pay tribute on behalf of all the space cadets. Space radio was such a wonderful concept, engaging, human, interesting, and accessible. Of course, we'll be sad to see it go, but looking to the future, we're also excited about what's to come. Whatever your new venture is, please, please include the facility for us space cadets to continue to ask questions. I have a thousand more questions stacked up in my head. The way you explain astronomy and cosmology and make them comprehensible to the layman is unparalleled and seems to be a consequence of melding your obviously profound knowledge with your superb natural aptitude for clear communication. So, on behalf of space cadets everywhere, Thank you, Paul. Uh, Steve, I don't know what to say, except that wasn't a question. Oh, I'm just kidding. That was that was very sweet. I should have played voicemail roulette in the last episode. I really do appreciate that. I agree. My favorite part of space radio is just sitting down and chatting with you guys um, and hearing your questions. I love, I always love hearing what people are curious about. I always love incorporating Q&As. Uh, to that end, I do want to mention, and just I can't thank you enough, because it, it really is all of you who are making this, who made this show possible for four years. It wasn't me. You guys you guys did all the heavy lifting, which was really an excuse. Four years ago, I was like, man, I got to plan a half-hour show. I don't know what to write. I have to do research. I know. All of the audience asks questions, and I'll make it up on the fly. So that is really an expression of my laziness and my uh, inability to prepare for a presentation. Uh, but here's a couple venues where you can ask more questions. One is Ask a Spaceman. Askaspaceman.com. It's my long-running podcast that is not going away. That's also supported by Patreon. Yeah, it takes a little bit longer to get your question answered, but I eventually kind of get to you. There may be some questions on there that are seven years old, but I, I, I want to answer all the questions, and I'll keep going with that show. Also through Patreon, patreon.com, when you are a contributor, you can, uh, you can directly 
ask me questions and in in the in the space cadets who support me on patreon will attest that i will go on patreon and i will answer questions sometimes it's short sometimes it's long sometimes i just point to an existing episode but i do try to answer every question that appears on patreon so you do get that access is patreon.com slash pm sutter and another place i can't believe i'm saying this is tiktok it's tiktok is a place yeah no i wasn't expecting that either okay we're all in the same boat so i if for those of you who've been following me for a while i did tiktok a year ago uh they 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 worked with a bunch of science communicators uh, of various fields and they wanted to get more science on tiktok platforms so so they engaged us they contracted us I was recording videos. I didn't know what to talk about. I didn't know what to say. I didn't feel comfortable on the platform. It was a very unsatisfying and ungratifying experience. I am returning to TikTok because now I have some help from a, a very, very savvy young woman named Sasha, uh, who is working with me, where I create the content and then she makes it all TikTok-y, which is fantastic. It's just like like Nancy like does a lot of back-end work for Space Radio. I have uh, editors for my YouTube videos and my podcasts. I have Adam, my social media manager, who's, who's, who's helping me create posts. Like I need a lot of help. Sasha's helping me. She's wonderful. So we just started a week ago. And here, Space Cadets, can you see my phone? There's my TikTok profile. And there's one video up. It's just hello TikTok. There'll be another one up tomorrow. I'm, I'm going to post about once a week. But there's a little button here that you can press. A little button. And it says Q&A. So you press that button and you ask a question. And I'm hoping to turn TikTok into a venue where people can ask me questions. If you're not on TikTok, I don't blame you. <laughs> uh, but I am and I'm there and I'm taking questions there and I'm going to wrap up answers in 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 TikTok form, which I think is going to be really fun. And the kids are all doing it. And really, it, 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 I, I do want to reach. There are a lot of teenagers on TikTok and teenagers are infinim, infamously difficult to reach with science communication. And so, so there I am. And there are some very, very wonderful science communicators already established on TikTok. So I encourage you to, to give it a, I'm not being paid by TikTok to, to do this. Uh, or, or I'm not giving them a shout. I'm just saying that every platform, every single social media platform, you will find science communicators and you'll find excellent science communicators. And you might also find me, Stephen, that was very beautiful. And I, I can't thank you enough. You've asked some primo top quality questions over these past four years and and i will miss you guys but hey we got two more weeks we don't need i just spat on my microphone we've got two more weeks we don't we don't need to start crying yet because there's cheese here we've got an artisan creamery here four fat fowl a saint stephen i'm not sure if four fat yeah four fat fowl is the name of the creamery and then this is their saint stephen's triple cream soft ripened cheese right there for fat fowl from oh oh larry beckham my next book it's called a sickness in science and it will be out next year it will be out next year it's in 
editing with the University of Toronto Press right now, and it's going to be a lot of fun. It's a very difficult book to write. It was a very difficult book to write. It's about how um, scientists are failing and some of the mistakes scientists are making in their communications with the public, in their dealings with each other, uh, the difficulty uh, of getting uh, long-term jobs, the lack of diversity, the lack of outreach, the politicization of science. Like It's, it's all in there. Uh, Edward Hinton is asking, I'm glad you guys are talking about this as I dig into this cheese, brought to us by my good friends at Dom's Cheese, D-O-M-S-Cheese.com. That was the dream come true a year ago when Dom's Cheese first started sponsoring the show and giving me free cheese every week. And here's the thing, they're running out of cheese. So that's why the show is ending. Why is the show ending? 40,000 subs are going to be disappointed. If you look at the analytics of you, my published YouTube videos of Ask a Spaceman versus Space Radio, over time, Ask a Spaceman has steadily gone more, have more and more and more, more views. It's scaling with the number of subscribers. Space Radio has not. It seems that live presentations, and I've looked at other channels and talked to other presenters, it seems that there is a limit to what uh, YouTubers are willing to do for live science discussions, even after the fact. And I, I, I hit that ceiling like two and a half years ago. And trust me, you guys are fantastic. You really are. But this show, I do it for free. I also do a lot of other things for free. And I have to be really careful about what I do um, uncompensated because I'm trying to make a living. Now, speaking of com compensation. And I know that sounds a little bit greedy, but, um, you know, trying to feed a family with cheese. And not the, the cheap stuff. I'm well, Okay, I, I do feed the family with the cheap stuff. I'm not ashamed about that. But I also try to feed them with 4-5-Fowl Stain Steven triple cream. Oh, wow. That was not what I was expecting. What's in there? Ooh. That is lovely. I was expecting yet another triple cream, okay? I don't know how many breeze I've had. I don't know how many triple creams I've had. And usually triple cream, I'm going to talk with my mouth full of cheese. Usually it goes deep and woody and mushroomy and stanky. This is very bright. It's very lively. There's a note in here that I wish I could describe. It's yummy. This is fun. I'll eat this. I'm literally eating it. Mmm. Thank you, Nancy. Everyone has to make a living. I'm not being greedy. Mm-hmm. I will miss you guys. Hey, we got two more weeks, okay? Two more weeks so we don't have to cry yet. Don't worry. We'll cry a lot in two weeks. Thank you for joining me on this Voyage of Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. And also, all my outreach work. Uh, Ask a Spaceman, that podcasting YouTube series is continuing, and it is brought to you by you. Patreon.com slash PM Sutter. No one, I do get a little bit of advertising money for the podcast. It's not much. It probably wouldn't even pay for this cheese if I didn't get for free.
Bountiful heaven could be a cheese. <gasps> That's it. Lania Kea brand cheese. Now I know what to name my creamery. <sighs> Thank you, Nancy Graziano, for producing the show, Wrangling the Space Cadets. Next week, we'll be with Christian Reddy. It's going to have a great time. And then after that will be the last show. So catch the live stream for two more Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern. Visit spaceradioshow.com. And of course, thank you again, Space Cadets, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing. End of transmission.